Right now, with today being Election Day, and with the 2024 presidential election just one year away, we're going to take a look at how each of the two parties are faring. Patrick Ruffini is the author of a book called Party of the People, about how the Republican Party has become the party of the working class now, taking over from the Democrats, and how the 2016 election is shaping the party's future. For years, the Democratic Party was seen as the party of the working class, or specifically the party for minority groups in this country. But Patrick says that is no longer the case. I mean, you really have to look at the groups that have shifted over the last two election cycles. You know, you have 70 percent of the country that is in this what I call this working class majority, this multiracial populist coalition um, that includes white voters without college degrees. And it includes non-white voters, non-white voters of all of all backgrounds. And there's an interesting reason for that. I don't, um, you know, because actually you don't really, really see those divisions, right, uh, by education level among black voters or Latino voters. They kind of tend to behave more similarly. So the voters in that group, that majority group, all swung and moved towards Trump and Republicans in that eight year period between 2012 and 2020. The only group that moved towards the Democrats um, were white voters with college degrees in during the Trump era. There was a lot of talk right after the 2016 election about um, Trump using the so-called racial dog whistles, the so-called issue of racial resentment, um, talking about building a wall, talking about excluding Muslims from entering the United States. And instead of really repulsing non-white voters and instead of repulsing a lot of these immigrant voters, you know, over the course of his two, the two elections in which he was a candidate, he actually appealed to those voters who he turned away were folks um, who were highly educated, who, you know, certainly took offense to a lot of Trump's comments, took offense to a lot of Trump's personal style. Um, but what's curious is that a lot of the targets of Trump's offhand, you know, off color comments uh, we're, did not seem to be that bothered by them. And, of course, this really baffles Democrats. So I asked him, he, of course, he's a Republican, but I asked him, what would a Democratic candidate need to do to win back those voters? I mean, I think the next election is up for grabs. Um, I think it is, it is extremely close at the moment. Um, and I think it really is. 50, I really do think it's 50-50. You know, you would think with Donald Trump potentially being the Republican nominee, that it should be a lot easier for Democrats. They should be having an easier time of it. Well, I think they and, believe that. I think that there are some Democrats right. who are saying, yeah, we really want Donald Trump to beat him easily. Yeah. But they may be making yeah. a pretty big mistake there, I'm thinking. Right. I mean, I think it's a double-edged sword because I, I think there's certainly, look, there's a desire, I think, in the country. So can we just move beyond these two guys, right? There's a really strong desire. And I think if it were any other Republican against Biden, I think that they would become the immediate favorite. Now, the fact that you have, you know, you might have a Trump versus Biden race, I mean, it means that, um, you know, all of the issues that I talked about, about the 2020 election, about the sort of surge of Hispanic voters, those are all in play again. Because, you know, you, if you have a second Trump-Biden election, the safest bet is you're going to see voting patterns that are pretty that are just going to be reinforced, that are just going to kind of continue from where they were last time. You won't necessarily see, you know, a huge opportunity by Democrats to shake up um, the electoral map, um, you know. And I do think that on the one hand, they kind of know what's coming 
and can prepare for it. But I think I think fundamentally, it's I think that the challenge for both political parties is to remember that across all measures that you can think of in terms of education level, in terms of where people work, where people live, you know, we are not a, let's say, a majority college educated country. We are really, uh, you know, kind of, um, you, you know, th- this is the demographic majority of the country. And it is not, it is not, as you say, just the white college educated left that can really carry this coalition in the same way as you saw Barack Obama certainly appeal to more diverse segments of the electorate. And after Obama, uh, you know, they fall off of that. So I think that the, you know, Republican Party has been made stronger as a result and the Democratic Party is we- is weaker now as a result of that. We're hearing from Patrick Ruffini, Republican pollster, author of a book called Party of the People. And of course, the other big concern for voters going into 2024, uh, 2024 after seeing how 2020 turned out is whether our voting system can handle this. So I asked Patrick about that. I think the system is strained. I think it's not broken. I think that Congress as a whole did the right thing on January 6th, then responded um, in a good way to that challenge. Um, so it, it obviously didn't prevent that from taking place. Um, but the fact is that every institution of government that we counted on, that we would count on in this type of situation held up from Congress ultimately voting to certify the election. Yes, there were a lot of no votes on that. Um, but it's kind of a situation of, uh, you know, I think for those folks, it may be a, been a situation of vote yes, hope no, or, you know, kind of the opposite, uh, voting the opposite of how you privately feel. But, you know, the institutions, I, I, I am I am actually somewhat optimistic because the institutions did kind of hold up from that vote to even the Trump appointed judges, none of whom would go along with these shenanigans. Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini. There are lots of news stories regarding the health benefits of eating salmon, but is it sustainable or are the populations collapsing? Kyber News Radio's Chris Martin looked into it. Salmon as a whole are not an endangered species. In fact, University of Alaska's Peter Wesley says, There's probably more salmon in the ocean than there has been at least in the last hundred years. But by species, those salmon are often not the ones that people most care about and like eating. But some populations are doing a lot better than others. Alaskans Fish and Wildlife Kevin Shaberg says that salmon numbers do fluctuate. Overall, salmon runs were pretty good this year. Black eye runs did fairly well. Pink salmon, chum salmon did well. And then obviously the elephant in the room, king salmon. Chinook, also known as king salmon, are having problems in the Puget Sound, too. They've been on the endangered species list here in Washington for almost 25 years and have yet to recover. So I asked Mark Baltzell from Washington Fish and Wildlife, should we stop eating salmon altogether? I don't think not fishing or not eating salmon's really the way to solve things. It's getting involved at the local level with salmon recovery projects. And Alaska's Peter Wesley said, If you're going to eat salmon, I think you should eat completely guilt-free wild-caught sockeye salmon from Alaska, from places like Bristol Bay. It's doing very, very well. Clear evidence that it's sustainably managed. But some native tribes near Alaskan waters don't have access to sockeye. Wesley says Chinook salmon are in decline across the state and in absolute collapse in the Yukon. Many indigenous cultures are based around the Chinook. So he says you may want to think twice about eating Chinook or king salmon. It's a crisis that certainly doesn't 
doesn't get enough attention in places like Seattle. There are people that are literally going without food in their freezers. The lack of salmon is a tragedy of epic proportions. Everyone I spoke with says climate change plays some part in Chinook's decline, but there's no simple solution. Wesley says there is one thing we can do. Harvest is something that we can control. When salmon are really struggling, we need to dial back harvest to very, very low levels. And here in Washington, Mark Botzell says there are rules in place to help the salmon populations thrive. Any harvest of salmon that occurs in in Washington waters is really highly regulated. We're being really mindful of our fisheries impacts on these stocks. The takeaway is that we can continue eating salmon, particularly sockeye, guilt-free. But we need to be diligent with other species who are struggling to survive and do what we can to help bolster their numbers. Chris Martin, Cairo News Radio. Let's talk Second Amendment. The Supreme Court is hearing arguments today on whether the government may disarm people who've been slapped with domestic violence orders. Because that concept may be in trouble. I talk with CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum about this latest gun rights case. So here we have a guy that's just, you know, used guns in the past to threaten his girlfriends and wives, you know, fires guns in the air recklessly just to make a statement. So, you know, he doesn't seem to be a sympathetic litigant. But the Supreme Court, in the last time it dealt with the Second Amendment, expanded gun rights and, you know, it made Second Amendment enthusiasts happy by saying, that you can't regulate a person's law-abiding right to own a gun, not just in the house, which is what the Heller decision was years ago, but even to take it outside the house, right? If you're a law-abiding person, if it's concealed, you can take your gun outside your home. And that's what this guy was doing. Problem is he had a protection order against him by his girlfriend or wife, and there was a legitimate reason for it. Orders of protection are not criminal. They're civil. So when I said the words before law-abiding, it's not clear that this is a violation of that. So the Supreme Court has to say, in this instance, did the state have a state interest, a compelling state interest, to violate someone's Second Amendment gun rights by saying, we don't trust you with a gun around women. Mm-hmm. And so you can't have you can't have one. You're, we don't trust you. But he didn't. Again, he's, he's in the law abiding category. Here's the other problem. The last time the Supreme Court talked about this in the Bruin case, when it ruled that New York's law was overbroad in preventing you from taking a gun outside your house. Right. For 100 years, New Yorkers had this law. You can have a license for a gun in your house, but you can't walk outside with it. That was challenged and invalidated, overturned. And Justice Thomas said that we can't really regulate guns in this country unless there's a historical reason for it. Do you think maybe the court took this case because it's going to try and create some consistency here to uh, somehow revise that earlier order? You know, either to say we're going to use the historical context across the board or we've completely changed our minds about the historical context. Or we, we were really kidding. We were kidding about law abiding. We were serious about that, right? And so therefore, unless you've got a crime, we can't deny you the right to have a gun, even if we don't trust. You have to commit a crime. If you're law abiding, and to our knowledge, as Supreme Court justices, an order of protection is a civil remedy preemptively 
trying to protect a woman from someone who has a reasonable fear of someone who could might hurt her. So I don't know. All I know is that, you know, normally in instances like this, you have more, you have more sympathetic plaintiffs. And this is a guy that the evidence is clear. This guy's like shooting guns in the air. He just is, you know, scary, <laughs> but that doesn't mean that he's now. Ironically, he's in jail for other reasons, but not, not for domestic violence. And so this is a civil remedy for domestic violence. And I do think that this court, because it's a conservative court and has already been clear that we have um, ignored the Second Amendment rights. There are justices like Thomas and Alito in particular who feel that the Supreme Court over the last 20 years has just been not hearing these cases because they just think it's too politically loaded. And so they, they in particular have been wanting to hear more of these cases. The Heller case, I think from 2006, I think, there wasn't another case until this one in New York two years ago. Heller only stood for the proposition, the Second Amendment allows private individuals to keep a gun in their house for self-defense reasons if they're law-abiding. And the next case took till 2022 or 21, where they said, yeah, but it doesn't have to be only in the home. You can carry it outside as long as it's concealed and law-abiding for self-defense. This guy's story challenges those premises. CBS legal analyst Thane Rosenbaum. Thank you, Thane. Anytime, Dave. Thank you. Seattle's Morning News, Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. And here is Windermere's chief economist, Matthew Gardner. So first question, is inflation finally over? I think that it is. Now, we're not going to know. I mean, the trend's certainly going in the right direction. We're at peaks of, what, 9%. Um, but in terms of total inflation, but the core inflation has been dropping as well. Total has. But if you look at a different thing that us economists do, it's a thing called the super core what that is, it's the core inflation rate, which is inflation minus food and energy, the most volatile sectors, but it also excludes shelter. And we're now down uh, just just north of 3%. In fact, we might, might be around... If you exclude all that, what's left? Oh, well, I mean, well <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of things left uh, outside of that. A lot of services mainly, um, because you're taking out that food and energy part. But um, what... I, I see the numbers and yes, now is it slower than we would like to see? Sure. Are we all complaining going to the grocery store still? Absolutely. But the trend is definitely going the right direction, certainly in the last week or so. Um, other numbers as well from an economic standpoint uh, are showing that we are possibly, again, fingers crossed, we just, one summer day does not a, not a, a summer make, but uh, mm-hmm. it, it's we are possibly looking at the soft landing that the Fed hmm. was looking for. But so not guaranteed. Not going, but it is certainly looking good. I'd be surprised to see any increase uh, in the Fed funds rate, certainly yeah. for this year. We don't want to jinx it. This is <laughs> happening just, just as I've discovered that you can buy a CD paying like 5%. Oh, well, yes, you can. Uh, they're tips, they're treasury insured protected. So basically, um, it's a bond that's linked to inflation. Mm. So as inflation is high, uh, you can buy those and uh, they, they're yielding uh, numbers which we haven't seen for a long time. I should ask you, before we do anything else, uh, Jeff Bezos leaving town. Yes. Is that smart economics for him? Yes, tax-wise. Yeah. Uh, and that is literally the... I mean, certainly it's... I'm sure that he's got his own other personal reasons as well. But just the uh, the obvious one, given his wealth, 
would be uh, looking at it, saying, okay, well, where's the best place for me for, for, uh, for tax purposes? Again, that's why we're seeing a lot of our more mature um, residents moving to places like Florida. <laughs> like Florida, yeah. Uh, because of the fact that they're, they're considering a certain amount of money, they're trying to keep stretch it out as long as they possibly can. Yeah. Well, I don't think he has to worry about stretching out his money. As that is as true. <laughs> uh, one would like to think not. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, housing prices in this area. I noticed that uh, they're they're up modestly, but there, there are some huge jumps I noticed in uh, Kitsap, Mason, and especially San Juan counties. Yeah. So uh, in general, you're right. But I tend to look at list prices rather than sell prices because sell prices are, are what's happened list prices are mm. what's going to be so starting out with, with the list prices we actually seen have seen some modest contraction in them they are dropping a bit which does make sense given where mortgage rates are today but certainly where they were the last few weeks when we were breaking north of eight percent so i think some sellers are realizing that it's not uh, all their way all the time as we've seen a modest contraction there that obviously will ultimately likely play through to lower sell prices. But in markets that you're talking about, the smaller the market area, uh, the more frenetic price changes can be mm -hmm. because there's only a certain amount of sales. And certainly think about San Juan County. All of a sudden, you can have a couple of massive waterfront home selling. That's going to skew the data. So it really, uh, when you look at some of these small counties, Mason's another one as well. If you don't see that many transactions, you can see is wild swings uh, in price changes. Are we seeing any relief for renters? No, um, rent, yes and no. I think yes, uh, the, the fact that rental rate growth has been slow, certainly on the apartment side. But a massive, massive jump uh, in rents, I mean, double-digit uh, annualised rent growth uh, about a year and a half ago now. But that has certainly slowed down significantly why we're bringing on a lot of new apartments. More supply, finite amount of demand. We are bringing on new apartments. Yes, we huh? are a lot of them. All right, and where are they? Uh, really, all over the Everywhere. place. Everywhere. Yeah. Uh, so I think that what we found in the last uh, certainly several years, very little interest in building condominiums, a lot of interest in apartments, and also developers are looking at the world today. And I think they're saying, okay, well, unless mortgage rates drop very significantly, we're creating a lot of forced renters. Mm -hmm. Those who would like to buy, they just haven't got the wherewithal when rates are, I mean, right now, certainly it's been getting significantly better last week, but uh, uh, far higher than uh, we've seen in decades, quite frankly. Any of those zoning changes kicking in and having an effect? No. Um, I'd like to say yes. Uh, and I think it's going across the state. And I've actually been pulling some numbers on that recently just to see if anything has been happening. And it really hasn't. I mean, the number of duplex, triplex, four-unit buildings, up to sixplex permit applications, uh, or at least permits issued, still woefully low. Hmm. But I think, uh, again, a lot of it is a function of what it's going to cost to build those units, more over and above that, it's also what it's going to cost to buy the land. Or are you have, going to have to buy a home, raise it, and then rebuild on it? That gets awfully expensive. And if you're going down that road, are the margins going to be there? Is it going to be a profitable uh, development for the builder? And quite frankly, no. And again, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, this whole thing about building in single-family zones started in, what, 2016 in yeah. Minneapolis. Uh, it's gone on through Oregon and California. We haven't seen any form of panacea. Hmm. Uh, in so you're, you're saying that uh, that upzoning w will not make a significant difference? I, th well, this is this is slightly different. Careful about upzoning because that's a possibly a different subject. But the 
ability under House Bill 1110 that will allow you to build duplexes up to six unit buildings inside single family zoned areas. That's one thing. Now, other upzoning can be inclusionary or incentive or station area overlays, these kinds of things, which tend to be more significant multifamily. So they're two very different things. Uh, yes, I think it certainly helps. But right now, given construction costs, it's going to take some time to actually start working its way through the system. So I do ultimately expect we will over the next several years. But then it's not going to be a panacea, and I've always said that yeah. it's not going to be the cure-all. I'm not looking for, you know, magical solutions, but it would be nice to know if at what point we start turning the corner towards creating a significant amount of affordable housing so that yeah. you're, you're not seeing otherwise middle-class people uh losing the ability to to rent a, a home in this area. Yeah, and you are absolutely right. But here, here's the thing, David. We, uh, I mean, zoning was created across the country back in 1925, but uh, in essence around here, certainly Puget Sound, quite frankly, across the, the state, uh, we have pretty much built out so much of our land. So in order to uh, make this kind of process work, you have to said raise, you have to buy someone or several people's homes adjacent to each yeah. other. Well, that's going to be like herding cats. Secondly, you have to talk them into selling. Well, if they hold a mortgage, they're saying, well, hang on, I'm sat on a sub 3% 30 and rates are at eight. Um, no, you can't mm -hmm. make me sell. So I think we're really stuck in that middle part right now, whereby uh, it's a good plan. It's just going to take some time for it to start to be enacted. The only other way we can do it is look to free up additional surplus land. And this is interesting. I don't see any desire to move our urban growth boundaries. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. What about opening no. up some of that other... There's no political will to do no. that at all. However, let's look at land that's owned by the county. Let's look at mm -hmm. lands owned by jurisdictions, by cities. Let's look at PUDs, uh, public utility district land. Uh, that's, in my opinion, low-hanging fruit. Contract rezone, you can start building. Yeah. Matthew Gardner, Chief Windermere Economist. Thank you, Matthew. As always, great pleasure, Dave. Your daily dose of kindness now brought to you by Robert W. Baird. Life is usually lived in color. And when a group of fifth grade students found out that wasn't exactly the case for one of their colorblind classmates, they took action. CBS's Nicole Nielsen has the heartwarming story from Grapevine, Texas. Ah, purple and blue look the same, he said. Inside the walls of Glen Hope Elementary School. They've been keeping a secret, which is huge. A secret kept for weeks. It wasn't long ago that Mrs. Hayes had her students discuss their favorite colors during class when they realized... Fifth grader Jaron Casillas didn't have one, or more specifically, couldn't see them. It's pretty much all colors. His mom, Lindsay, remembers the day she found out her son was colorblind. And I heard Jaron's voice in the back seat say, Mommy, look at the beautiful green sunrise. And I looked at it and I thought, oh dear. <laughs> green, purple, and blues, for example, he sees as gray. Trees are yellow, and the colorful classroom and world around him hasn't been so until they just this came from them and they really were driven to do it his classmates decided to take matters into their own hands collecting their allowances and donations to buy jaron special glasses to help him see color and not just one pair but two for indoor and outdoor if you wouldn't mind we would love to see you try them on and tell us what you think <laughs> Is this what everybody else has been saying the whole time? I know that my friends are really true friends for doing this for me. The hearts of these children in a 
time like this, you know, I think gives us all hope. He not only can now see new colors, but really just how beautiful the world can be. You know what I'm excited about? Uh. Legos. <laughs> I think he sees a sense of, you know, what true friendship is and caring people around him. And I just hope he carries this with him and he remembers this day for a long time. In Grapevine, Nicole Nielsen, CBS News, Texas. Those videos of people receiving those glasses, somebody who's lived their whole yeah. life color never fails to make me tear up and Is cry. what everybody's been seeing the whole time. <laughs> because I mean, they a, see our yeah. earth with whole new, and they're just like, this place is so beautiful. And yeah, makes you appreciate it all. And now from the G and Ursula show, which starts at nine, here is G Scott. G, we have another Starbucks story this morning. Yeah, yeah, good morning, y'all. Yeah, these Starbucks and everything going on. So basically what's happening is this. There's going to be some raises that's going to happen because right now the average salary is $17.50. Well, Starbucks is like, hey, look, there needs to be a raise. So starting January 1st, it's going to be a raise. As a matter of fact, uh, both union and non-union stores who have worked for four years or less they're going to get 3% or even 4% depending on the years of service right there. Now, the kicker is, is that the employees out there who have worked five years or more, they are nice enough to give them a 5% raise. How about you know, that? How about that, right? And, and, and you know, it's interesting. We're talking about 3%, 4%, 5%, but we all know that when it comes to the cost of living in the state of Washington and everywhere else, we all know it's above that. But anyways, that's another story. Now, the kicker, this is the part where it gets a little dicey because this is a new benefit, because this would be new January 1st, Starbucks is like, you know what? This is a new benefit. So therefore, we would have to uh, negotiate with this with the Workers United. And so you know what that means? That means all of the uh, unionized stores. Yeah, you guys won't be getting a raise because we can't really negotiate with this. And so Workers United has rejected that claim and said that they will still file an unfair labor practice charges on this. So as of right now, if you're wondering, there is a total of uh, 9,600 company-operated stores in the United States. 366 U.S. Starbucks stores have voted to unionize since 2021. So basically, if you work in the unionized stores, you're not getting a raise. You know how Oprah been like, you get a raise, you get a raise, you get a raise. <laughs> Y'all at the unionized stores no. not getting a raise. Everybody else is going to get a little paper in their pocket. I mean, isn't that to be expected, though? When you unionize, it's called bargaining, and you have to bargain for all of those things, including pay, including staffing. So I get what you're saying. Like, Starbucks is saying, like, hey, it would be a lot easier if you weren't a union, but... Th- <laughs> This is what unions do. This is what we're seeing with nurses. This is what we see with iron workers. This is what yeah. you, that you have to bargain. You're right. You're 100% right, Colleen. Now, there is some good news in this. Uh, right now, Starbucks said it is also going to be shortening the time that hourly employees must work before accruing vacation days. I didn't even notice, y'all. It was a year. You'd have to work at Starbucks what? for a year to accrue vacation days. Now they're going to go back to go to normal practices and make it 90 days. That's a year? I see our producer, yeah. a former Starbucks barista, saying, yeah, yeah, that's a year before you can take paid vacation. Uh, yeah, come on, DB Yikes. out there. Well, wait a minute, though. Not Here's very the modern. Kicker. But, but don't forget, 
that benefit is only available to workers at non-unionized stores. <laughs> oh, I see. So union workers would still have to bargain and figure right, out. Right, yeah, yeah. right, right. I mean, that's right. par for the course. Like, that's that's what unions do, right? Yeah. Am I wrong, Dave? Well, didn't like, they do this last year when they have a similar they had a similar problem and the union sued and I thought the NLRB ruled against Starbucks because the union, why would a union, I mean, we say you got to bargain with the union. Is the union going to object? To its members getting a raise? Right. No. Yeah. So they're going to try to get it. So why would they? Why would Starbucks say that this is not going to union people? Why don't they? Here, here's what they could do: pay it anyway and put the union in a position of telling workers they can't accept it. See now that. <laughs> oh, pure wow. evil genius, wow. Dave. Wow. Whoa, whoa, Dave. <laughs> What did you get? Did somebody give you some candy this morning? You need to be a little bit nicer. You, like Colleen just said, you are evil genius. <laughs> I'm just saying. You can always see both sides. Is this what I'm this is this is the way you you solve the the problem. If Starbucks really wants to reward all its people and it thinks the union's in the way and it doesn't recognize the union anyway, just give the raise to everybody. And so if the union the union's out in a position where I suppose it could object, but why would it? I mean. Would you would you tell your members, I'm sorry, we're not going to let you take this raise? In the meantime, Starbucks has put itself in the position of being the bad guy here by yeah. uh, deciding not to do it for the union stores. Ooh, I, I, you I should discuss say, this on the Jim Ursula show, I, I, which I'm, starts I'm, at nine. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to, and I just want to say I'm going to steal your angle because I never <laughs> okay. thought about that. Very <laughs> genius of you. Believe good me, morning, I'm, guys, have a I'm good used one. to it. Don't worry. <laughs> oh wow. Yeah, he is feisty this morning. Feisty. And here he is, direct from the New York Times, Washington correspondent David Farenthold. David, your paper conducted a poll in conjunction with Siena College, which has to have uh, Democrats, uh, I don't know, wondering if they're still living in the right universe, because it surveys black voters in six of the most important battleground states. And found that while 71% of them would, would back uh, Joe Biden, 22% of black voters in those swing states are going to vote for Donald Trump. So does the poll uh, explain, and these are people who, who uh, identi- identified as Democrats, apparently. So does the poll explain uh, what changed? Well, so this is the, these are part of a broader swath of polls we did that show Biden behind Trump in five of those six key swing states. Basically, that would be Biden losing the election if, if those results held. And I, I think part of what they there's a couple of important things to notice. They said they showed that a lot of people felt Biden was too old. Like a majority of the of the voters thought Biden was too old. Um, a majority of the of the voters were really concerned about economic issues and particularly about inflation, which they blame Biden for. Um, but also just a really unsettled, disengaged electorate. Like this is not the way it was in 2019 or even in 2015. People really have sort of like disengaged from politics in this period. And so the results are kind of all over the place. They show Biden losing to Trump by four. But then a generic Democrat, so just any Democrat beating Trump by eight, and then a generic Republican, some Republican other than Trump, beating Biden by double digits. So it doesn't seem like they've really sort of started to dig into this, really into this campaign season at all. I I don't know. There are warning signs for Biden here, but it also just looks like the American public doesn't really feel like the election has started yet. Yeah. I get the feeling, though, that the Democrats kind of assume that uh, black voters are all the same. And you have plenty of people who identify uh, as black who are not descendants of slaves. They come from other countries. And, and in, in particular, 
The New York Times quotes a uh, immigrant from Jamaica who was unhappy because Biden has not followed through on uh, immigration policies and also who worries the Democrats have gone too liberal when it comes to LGBTQ issues uh, and feels that they're that they would allow all sorts of uh, sexually explicit materials in uh, in school classrooms. Does this does this shock the party? I mean, were they prepared for this kind of uh, subtlety among black voters? I mean, I think they are. It's the same sort of story with Hispanic voters that, uh, you know, the Hispanic voters are not a monolith. There's a huge amount of diversity in terms of what they want and what they what they care about, you know, with economic issues being important to, to both black voters and Hispanic voters. I mean, I think Democrats think, well, you know, this is not in their mind. This is not going to be an election about Joe Biden. It's going to be an election about Donald Trump. You know, I think they'd be much more worried if it was Biden versus Nikki Haley or somebody else. And the, and the scrutiny was going to be on Biden. But they really feel like the election is going to be about Trump. And so Biden, you know, will look better in comparison. And if you're worried about immigration or if you think Biden has not been strong enough in support of, uh, of Palestine, then you're still going to go with Biden because who's, you know, who would vote for Trump? Trump's worse than Biden in those areas. Uh, but I do think this sort of like woke, you know, LGBTQ, like that, that sort of cultural issues, cultural liberalism is a danger zone for Biden with black voters and Hispanic voters because they're not as far left on those issues as the sort of young people in the most vocal folks on Twitter are that Biden may be listening to. So I think that is a that is a worry, an area of worry that the Biden folks just can't listen to their most vocal constituents who are pushing them far, far to the left on those cultural issues, because there are a lot of folks who traditionally vote Democrat who are not that far left and don't want to go that far left. Yeah. And has the party leadership gotten that message, do you think? I mean, I think they have. I, mean, I think Biden has particularly. But Biden is not far to the left on these issues. But you know, the, I think the problem is people haven't really heard much from Biden. Biden is not out on the campaign trail yet. There hasn't been a lot of like he's not a very vocal president. So the people who sort of stand in for Democrats are people you know from protests, people on Twitter, you know, a, a different and probably more liberal set of folks. So you know, the, Biden I think is in trouble. I think he does have some serious ground to make up. But I think we are still too early for people to really understand the alternative is Trump. And, you know, Trump is going to be worse in so many ways for those folks, uh, you know, even on the issues they care most about. Yeah. I heard a similar thing. I was talking earlier with uh, uh, Republican pollster Patrick Ruffini, who wrote a, a new book on this. And he says the Democratic Party, we talked about the shift in the Republican Party. He says the Republican Party has actually gotten more diverse and the Democrats have sort of retreated to being the party of, what do you say, uh, a white college educated liberals, basically. You know, I think there is some truth to that. There's, and I think, you know, the, they, they, they become, you know, the, the danger for the Democrats is that they become a party of like their own, you know, the people who look like their staffers, you know, the people who are sort of <laughs> professional political class rather than, you know, a broad based party, which, which you would need to win elections. So I think they've done actually done a pretty good job of recapturing some or like holding on to white, um, like rural voters or, you know, what white older voters, the kind of people that were hemorrhaging from the Democrats a few years ago. But you're still, you know, they are in danger of losing other people because their most vocal constituency is this sort of, you know, white, college-educated, very liberal on cultural issues, and not that, you know, economic issues matter less because those are people who have more money. Yeah. Now I uh, have talked about Donald Trump because you, uh, for a while anyway, were the were the uh, paper's Trump specialist. Did you watch any of the uh, trial coverage yesterday? Yeah, a lot of it. Okay, so um, Trump is arguing that the banks officials will testify that they didn't take any of those figures seriously, the inflated real estate values. 
and that they're going to do their own investigations anyway. Now, if if the bankers come in and say that, he has to walk, right? I mean, how could you convict him? I mean, I know it's not a jury trial, but if the bankers say, yeah, you know, Trump's Trump, we knew this full well, uh, but we really wanted a loan of money because, you know, he's good for our business. I mean, what happens if they if they uh, come to the stand and testify to that? Well, I, I mean, that would be bad for the AG's case. I think what the AG is, has argued, and, I, and I, I have to imagine that they have talked to the bankers, too. That it will not be a surprise to them what the bankers say. Mm-hmm. What they have said is that the bankers would have given, you know, that they did take some of the things that Trump said at face value. I mean, some of the things are sort of impossible to check unless you are Trump. You know, how big is Trump's? apartment how many you know how many like uh you know how many permissions does he have to build on lots on a certain property you know what are the limitations on the use of the property at mar-a-lago like it, you know there's some of the things that are sort of hard to check from the outside what the ag says the banks have said is that if we had known the real state of trump's finances we would have maybe given him still given him the loans but we would have charged a lot higher interest rates uh-huh. so yes we you know that Trump made, that Trump paid these loans back, but the AG's contention is that if he had had been honest about his assets, he would have had to pay like $186 million more in interest. So that's the loss to the banks. It's not that the banks didn't, you know, made loans and didn't get paid. It's the main, banks made loans on better terms than they would have if they'd known the true state of Trump's finances. New York Times reporter David Farenthal. David, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.